And it's just so sweet to step in and worship with you again this morning. And the songs that, that Clint chose were just perfect for us today. Perfect for reasons that will become even more apparent as we get into our time together in the Word. So I'm going to ask you to grab your Bible or your phone and let's head to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. It's almost in the middle of your Bible. And if you'll find your way to Psalm 27, that would be great. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. We'll try to supply a copy of God's Word. And so I'm not sure who's going to be doing that, but you've got a hand up. So let's get Bibles into those hands. And there's a note page. If you don't know the drill here, you're visiting us today, which is super great. Um, There's a note page in your bulletin that will be helpful along the way. And as you glance at that note page, church family, you can see that we're stepping into a, I'm just going to call it a little mini-series that we're calling Summertime Songs at IBC, Hanging Out in the Psalms. With our regular church family in and out, and of course Lisa and I on vacation as well, we're here during the summer Um, I thought we'd be well served by a short series in which kind of each week just it stands on its own. It's a freestanding morning. It isn't dependent on what has come before or or what's going to come after like we normally do with our book series. If you're a regular here at IBC, you kind of know that drill. We're just hanging out with a psalm each week during the course of this series. Pick up one of the 150 possible psalms and we unpack its truth. So each week is a new psalm. We can go anywhere that we want to in this summer series. Each week with a new theme, a new direction, maybe a new challenge, and a guaranteed blessing because it is the Word of God. We're going to be blessed if we're in the Word. Summertime songs at IBC. What do you think? Sound like a plan for us for the next few weeks? Right on, because that's exactly what we're doing. (laughs) Now, anyone who has been a Christian for any length of time has not only discovered the book of Psalms, but over time has come to cherish it. If you have been a Christian for very long, you have become, uh, begun to appreciate this amazing book, the longest book in the Bible. There's no other book in the Bible that is quite like the book of Psalms, for maybe for several reasons, but one of the main reasons is because it's essentially a song book. In fact, the word psalm actually translates a Hebrew verb that means to make music and sing praise. And uh, the the Greek equivalent of that Old Testament Hebrew word is the word psalmoi, which our English Bible translators early on anglicized and then turned it for us into the word that we know, the word psalms. This book, from its very inception, was meant to to be sung. So it's quite accurate to say that Psalms is the church's first songbook. And so if a friend ever asks you, hey, what's the first songbook that the church ever had? Well, you'll have the answer for them. And from that point on, you're going to be their their new go-to for all things Bible. Okay? (laughs) Now, we have, unfortunately, we've lost the original tunes to these songs. But the Holy Spirit has made sure that we didn't lose any of the lyrics. The fact is that many of the psalms have been put to all kinds of tunes since they were first written. And really, that's part of God's genius. That's part of his wisdom in losing those original tunes because now these songs find their way into every culture, every period of time in history, and their truths can be sung to any style of music 
that is meaningful to a particular group of people. In fact, you may have already noticed this, but every song that Clint chose for us today is based on a psalm. Did you know that? They all come from portions of the various psalms. God inspired not only ancient Israel's King David, but others, so that over the course of 550 years, from about 1000 BC to 450, under the watchful eye of the Holy Spirit, 150 poetic songs that lie literally, quite literally, at the center of your Bible, the Psalter, as we sometimes call it, was in its final form by about 300 B.C. And although the home of the Psalms is in the Old Testament, the Psalms are quoted often, very often in the New Testament, so much so that Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, will say to his disciples after his resurrection from the dead, he'll say, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the what? The Psalms must be fulfilled. This is Jesus' endorsement of the book of Psalms. It's Holy Spirit-inspired scripture, God's songbook for the church. Today, our summertime song of choice is Psalm 27, where your Bible is open. Let me just take a moment, church, and ask the Lord to bless our time in his precious word. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, as we have our Bibles open to this psalm, we want to just say thank you for the gift of the book of Psalms, and in particular this this psalm today. You have preserved the, the lyrics of this song for us because you have something to teach us here, some way that its truth can can be transferred into our lives by your Spirit, and then we can work that out in such a way that it not only benefits our life, but it brings glory to you. May that happen today. May we be doers and not just hearers of your holy word. Bless us in Psalm 27 as we seek to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Not too long ago, a friend emailed me a short article titled, A Weight Training Exercise for People Over 60. No joke, that was it. A weight training exercise for, pe- for people over 60. And I'm not sure exactly how I should take that, um, whether it was a veiled hint that I needed more exercise. But, but here's what this little article says. So begin by standing on a comfortable surface, all right, where you have plenty of room uh, at either side of you. Okay, got that. With a five-pound potato bag in each hand, extend your arms straight out from your sides and hold them there as long as you can. Try to reach a full minute and then relax. Don't be discouraged if it's hard at first. Each day you'll find that you can hold this position for just a little bit longer. After a couple of weeks, move up to 10-pound bags. Then try 50-pound potato bags and eventually try to get to where you can lift a 100-pound potato bag in each hand and hold your arms straight out for a full minute. Is that awesome or what? After you feel confident at this level, put a potato in each bag. (laughs) Yeah. My kind of exercise right there. (laughs) 
weight training for people over 60. I love that. (laughs) Church family, today we want to think about weight training. But not weight training, W-E-I-G-H-T, but weight training, W-A-I-T, as you see it there on your note page. How many of you this morning would say that when it comes to a virtue known as patience, you were blessed with an extra measure? For you, patience is one of your strengths. How many of you would say that? Would you raise your hand if that's you? Wow. You, wow. Amazing. (laughs) You are very special. How many of you would say that patience is one of your short suits? Very difficult for you. In fact, you'd be happy to do almost anything but wait. Show of hands. There we are. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I thought. Webster's Dictionary defines waiting as staying in one spot until something that is anticipated occurs. Staying in one spot until something that is anticipated occurs. Are you good at staying in one spot and waiting? No? No? (laughs) I ran across this little poem. It goes like this. Waiting is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Found seldom in a woman. Never in a man. (laughs) Now, if you stop and think about it, church family, we all should be experts at waiting, don't you think? I mean, we, we do it a lot in our lives. We wait in lines at stores, at restaurants, at doctor's offices, and, and even in, in, for women especially, at restrooms, right? I mean, lots of times you have to wait at restrooms. We wait on, tra- at, on, on traffic lights. We wait, wait in traffic jams. Lisa and I spent on our vacation no less than probably two and a half, three full hours of just waiting for accidents or traffic to clear. Yeah, it's just what we do. We wait on the phone while while an automated voice goes through a dozen options, right, before we get to do anything. We, we, we are, when we're little, we, we wait till we're grown up. We can't wait till we're grown up, and we can't wait till we graduate from school. And when our kids are grown up, we can't wait till they have grandkids that we can enjoy and then give back whenever they're fussy. It's awesome. I love that. We can't wait to retire. We wait to hear test results from our doctors. We, we wait to hear about a new job that might be coming our way. We wait, wait, wait. We should all be experts at waiting because we all play the waiting game and nobody gets to sit on the bench. We all have to play. All of us can relate to a well-known preacher from a bygone time. His name was Phillips Brooks. He was actually well-known for his unruffled poise and his very quiet manner. He kind of had a reputation for being unflappable. At times, however, when he suffered moments of frustration or irritability, born of waiting, he would, he, would, he would be just like you and me. In fact, a friend saw him feverishly pacing the floor like a caged lion. He says, what's the trouble, Mr. Brooks? And he said, the trouble, sir, is that I'm in a hurry. But God isn't. 
Can you relate? I can relate. Our Bible speaks often about the importance of waiting, and in particular, waiting on the Lord, and certainly the book of Psalms is not silent on this topic. Numerous times it addresses this issue. Uh, On your note page, several examples of that. We won't read all of these, but we'll check out a few of these with me. Psalm 40, verse 1, David was in a really tight place in his life, and he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. Psalm 62, 1 and 5, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. Psalm 38, 15, But but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. And, church family, it's not all balloons and butterflies and feel-good declarations. Check out Psalm 69, verse 3. The psalmist says in anguish, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. You can just hear that. Have you ever said that? Felt like that? Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. The watchman on the wall, I can't wait for the sun to rise up. David says, I wait on you, Lord, like that, looking for you to make your, your plans known to me. I'm waiting. And from the last verse of the psalm that is before us today, David writes, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. 27.14 If you haven't memorized that verse, that might be one to put on your list. I'm going to hide that in my heart because you will use it. I use it all the time. Again, as we said a moment ago, we all get to play the waiting game and none of us gets to sit on the bench. And because that is true, we will all benefit I believe, from a little weight training today because that's essentially what David provides for us in this psalm, a strategy, a Holy Spirit-inspired strategy for coping with and moving through well those times in our lives when we're forced to stay in one spot, as Webster said, waiting until, until something occurs. Obviously, the term weight training, as you see it there on your note page, is a play on words alluding to the setting of athletics and and physical training. Before athletes step onto a field, as you know, before they enter the contest, before they play the game, we all know that they have spent countless hours in a weight room and not with empty potato sacks either, by the way. I remember that regimen when I was playing football in high school and college. Oh, lots of time spent in the weight room before you ever went out on the field. They put in the time, weight training, conditioning their muscles, building strength, flexibility, endurance, so that when they do encounter the opponent, when they step into the contest, they're going to be ready. Those athletes are going to be at their best. They're going to be fit and strong and, and, and in a position to win. And so the same is true in the waiting games of our lives. The time to wait train, W-A-I-T, is not as the game is unfolding. 
It's not when we really need to be waiting on the Lord. The time to be training is before that, right? Before the contest happens. Waiting is hard, and, and depending on the specific issue that we are facing, it can be incredibly difficult, brutal, stretching every muscle fiber of our faith to be able to wait on the Lord. Waiting on, waiting on the Lord, it, it's a faith battle for a follower of Jesus. You fight this battle. You need to train to be ready for the fight. Only the foolish would wait till the battle is on and then say, oh, I think I need to start training. That would be foolish. We need to wait train now. So God's word has given us Psalm 27 to help us do that. This psalm is one of the better known, I think, of the 150 songs in the Psalter. Well known to many of you. Some of you have memorized portions, maybe even the whole psalm. David writes this song against a very dark backdrop during a very difficult time in his life. Enemies threaten, and the future for him is not very clear. Some Bible scholars try to pin this psalm to a specific crisis moment in David's life, but such efforts, I believe, end up just being guesses at best. So we're not going to try to nail it to a moment in David's life. It's enough to simply say that David has been forced into one of those waiting places in Psalm 27. One of those places where life in a sinful, fallen world is inevitably going to take you. Just like it, it did him, it does you and me. Actually, in fact, the, the fact that there's not a specific situation mentioned, there's no little... Uh, script at the front of the psalm that tells us why this song was this song was written i think that's really great because that lets you and i personally apply psalm 27 to our story whatever our story might be to our waiting place so like an unfolding symphony in four movements david shares with us how he wait trains so flip your study page over and let's see what he does church In the first three verses, what we see is David expressing his confidence in God. This confidence is grounded in previous experiences that he has had with God. And since God does not change, he chooses to remember what God has done for him in the past as a way of strengthening his resolve in this present waiting place. Listen, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Stop right there. David, in effect, says, Lord, I will continually remember that you are light that you are salvation, that you are my stronghold. I'm not going to forget that. I'm going to train by remembering that. First, my light. What kind of image comes to your mind when you try to visualize God? What comes to mind? Do you you conjure up a, a picture of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel that Michelangelo preached where God's Got his finger kind of pointed out there. A famous moment, you know, in that that depiction. Is that what comes to mind when you think of God? 
I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Really, any effort to visualize God, of course, is futile. We can't do that. Jesus says in, in John chapter 4 that God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Perhaps the most biblically appropriate thing we might do when trying to imagine God, though, is to, to think of light, brilliant, bright, blinding light. The Apostle Paul will say in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God lives in unapproachable light. Psalm 104 verse 2 says that God wraps himself in light like you and I would, would wrap ourselves in a blanket on a cold winter night. God wraps himself in light. Psalm 36 verse 9 declares, In your light we see light. It's a great way to visualize God. Now, of course, all of that changes in one respect in the New Testament with the entrance into our world of whom? Jesus, right? Jesus. Jesus will say in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world, right? I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 1 verse 9 says, Jesus is the true light, the true spiritual light that gives life to every sinner. But what is David thinking of here when he says, the Lord is my light? Well, very clearly, he is facing an uncertain future. There are enemies, possibly armies, at the very least ruthless individuals who want to do him great harm. He's informationally speaking, though, in the dark. He doesn't know exactly what they want or how it's going to unfold. And when we have no information or inaccurate information, what do we usually do with that? We become afraid. We become afraid. When we don't know, or what we know isn't accurate, we don't know for sure, we tend to go to places of fear. Fear, and sometimes lots of it. We start imagining all kinds of things that may or may not be true because we don't have the light. Case in point, a woman in Arkansas was sitting in the driver's seat of her car in a parking lot when she heard a loud bang, and then she felt this sharp pain in the back of her head. Her head goes forward, and she instinctively takes both hands and puts them on the back of her head. And a passerby walking by sees her and says, Man, are you okay? And she says, No, I'm not okay. I've been shot in the head and I'm holding in my brains. <laughs> well, you can imagine <laughs> the shock, the horror that would be created for her would be helper. Well, the person took a closer look and discovered that it wasn't her brains that she was holding in her hands. It was bread dough. It was bread dough. A Pillsbury biscuit tube on a grocery sack in the back seat had exploded in the heat of the car, makes a loud bang, shoots the lid against her head along with a healthy dose of dough. And, and so she's imagining that she's holding in her brains in that moment. Now, imagine her relief when she realized it wasn't her brains. 
<laughs> it was the Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> you know, sometimes our fears are like that. We just go automatically to this crazy place. The worst possible thing is going to happen. But there are other times when our fears are very rational, well-founded. David says, I think enemies and armies are on my doorstep. But Lord, you are the light that reveals what's really going on. And I'm not going to forget that. In 2 Samuel 22, 29, David provides his own commentary, I think, on verse 1 when he says, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Isn't that a great verse? I love that. You lighten my darkness. Lord, you are my light. And then he says, you're my salvation. Now, the Hebrew word for salvation that David uses here literally means deliverance. It's not salvation in the sense that you and I think of when we think of salvation through faith in Jesus. Now, that is a wonderful deliverance. It's the, it's the greatest deliverance of all, isn't it? Yes, where, where we're delivered from slavery to sin. We're delivered from the threat of, of, of eternal death. When we're delivered from hell and all that that entails by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ who, who died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's the greatest deliverance of all. But that's not salvation as David is thinking of it. For him, he's seeing God as the only one who can save him from the enemies that are pressing in on him. He remembers that his God is his rescuer, his deliverer. In the psalm right after this one, Psalm 28, verses 8 and 9, David expresses the same idea as we have here. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Lord, you've been my shepherd in the past and my salvation in the past. Why would you not be that for me now? That's weight training. He's he's remembering his God. Whom shall I fear, he says? Whom shall I be afraid of? If the Lord is my light and my rescuer, why should I be afraid? I mean, that would be irrational fear because who is greater than my God? No one and nothing. And David says, you're my stronghold. A stronghold is a refuge, a place of safety from danger. David would have been thinking perhaps of a castle, maybe an impregnable tower, maybe a cave perched high up on a cliff because as you know, in his story, there were several times when he sought a cave for refuge out in the wilderness. So maybe that's what he's thinking. However, when I read verse 2, I instantly think of a lighthouse off the northern coast of France. The name of the lighthouse is La Jumet. You ever heard of it? No? Here's a picture of it. On a tranquil day, quite quite a lighthouse, and you can get a perspective on the size of this lighthouse just by measuring it against the boats that are at its base. This lighthouse gained great fame following a series of photographs taken of it in 1989 during a terrific Atlantic storm. This image, for example, captures for me perfectly, perfectly the stronghold that 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 David would be thinking of. I mean, that is amazing when you look at that picture. 
life with all of its impersonal force and unsympathetic power comes crashing in on you and all around you. And if you're not protected, it will smash you and take you out. But if you're in that stronghold, man, you're safe. You're safe. And what is probably the most famous of all of the images from that 1989 series, you can see the lighthouse keeper standing in the doorway of the lighthouse. Instant death surrounds him, and yet he's okay, right? And, and, and that, that's David. That's David when he says, you're my stronghold. Proverbs 18.10 expresses the same idea. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they are safe. Amen. That's our God. Lord, I will continually remember that you are my light to guide me. You're my salvation to deliver me and my stronghold to protect me. It's part of how I wait train. I remember you in those ways. The next technique that David employs, verses 4 through 6, expresses his deep desire when he says, Lord, I'm going to rest in your beauty. I'm going to rest in your beauty. Verse 4, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Man, the image of that lighthouse keeper in the storm just continues to work for me as I read David. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. In fact, Psalm 27 is that song that he's actually referring to. When David says in verse 4, I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, what he means by that church family is that he's going to make it his practice to ponder and to think about the awesome, amazing, incredible attributes of his God. He'll ponder and meditate upon those things that, that well, they, they make God, God, that make him beautiful to think about, that and, and, and doing that will bring him a peace and a settledness of soul, especially so as those time, at those times when his soul would be most prone to be anxious and worried and impulsive and reactive, afraid to wait on the Lord, to work, feeling like, man, I've got to do something. I've got to take action. I can't wait. I've got to do it. Lord, no, I will rest in your beauty, your attributes. What would that look like? What are those? Well, on your note page, you're infinite. Lord, you're unchanging. You're eternal. You're outside of time. And yet you've stepped into my time. You're present everywhere. There's no place I can go that you're not already there. You're sovereign. You're in total control of everything, everywhere, at all times. That's what it means to be sovereign. You know everything at all times. You never sleep. You never wonder. You're all powerful. You're never threatened. No one poses a threat to you. You're never wanting. You're never wishing that you had something that you don't have. You have it all. You are just, sinlessly 
holy. You always tell the truth. And you love with a love that can never be fully understood. You have me at the very center of your heart. I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's called weight training, church family. That's what that's called. He sought out his God, which for David meant going physically to a place where God was worshipped in Jerusalem at the tabernacle. And here David felt that he was best able to, to focus on his God and the beauty of his God, what he's like and how great he is. And I'm guessing that most of you, if you've been a Christian for very long, you have a place that you go to focus on the Lord and to spend time with him and to worship him, a place that's different from all other places. I don't know what that would be for you, but you have a place. I have a place. And it's not going to be a church building for you, probably. It's, but it's a sacred space. And there you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You have that. David had that. And so he remembers as a part of his weight training, and he rests in his God. He's, he's beautiful in all of his attributes. And then in verses 7 to 12, we see David do something else as part of his weight training regimen. He called out to his God for help. Or to say it another way, he was a prayer. Part of weight training is praying. Would you agree? Yeah. Check out verses 7 and 8. Hear, O Lord, when I what? Cry aloud. This isn't silent little bullet prayers. Shot up to heaven. This is the real deal. I'm crying out loud, he says. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. He's talking about prayer. The word seek means to inquire, to petition. In other words, my Lord and my God, I have to talk to you. I can't make it through this time if I can't come to you, pour out my heart to you verbally, out loud, and know that you will hear me. Do you and I have that perspective on prayer? Do we? Do we look at prayer like that? i got to talk to you today. Whether you're in a waiting space or, or things are just going great, it doesn't matter. Do you have that perspective on prayer? Does prayer hold that kind of elevated place of priority for you? I have to talk to you today, Father. If I don't, man, I'm going to come undone or get out in front of you or lag behind you, and I don't want to do any of that. I cry aloud, he says. And the really cool thing about this is that this is exactly what God wants. Exactly. He seeks intimacy with his children and longs to see that childlike dependence on him where we come to him and we say with all of our heart, I need you, Lord, I need help. I got nowhere else to go. Too often we miss God's reassurance and his guidance and continue in uncertainty and fear simply because instead of going to God in prayer, we keep trying to handle things on our own and fix it on our own. We don't wait. We don't pray. David says, I, I got to talk to you. I need to wait and talk to you. Verse 9. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you who have been my help, 
Cast me not off. Forsake me not. O God, my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Oh, that last phrase. You need to underline that in your Bible. That is a beautiful expression. David can be confident that God, that confident in coming to God with his most fear-producing stuff because it is God who's invited him to come. David has this internal fight with himself, just like you and I do sometimes. God's not interested in me. He's got bigger things to think about. I've been lazy in my relationship with him, and now I'm in this really tight spot of needing him, and and so I'm going to call out to him, but I don't feel like I can really call out to him because uh, I just haven't been hard after him, and I'm on my own. We sometimes go to those negative places. David says, no, no, no. The Lord will take me in. He will. I know that he will. And Jesus reinforces this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Listen, you earthly fathers. You know how to respond to your kids. When they ask you for bread, you don't give them a rock. You give them bread. And Jesus says, if that's how you as an earthly father care for your kids, how much more will your heavenly father care for you when you ask him, right? Critical part of effective weight training is prayer. Have you, have I built this into our spiritual training schedule? Now's the time for that, brothers and sisters, not when the game is on, but right now before it happens. Then comes verses 11 and 12. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. If we're really attuned to what David prays here, he's essentially saying, I'm waiting on you, my father. Lead me. I'm here. I'm waiting. My enemies appear to be perilously close, but you lead. I'll follow I'll wait. When you move, I'll move. And so it is, brothers and sisters, that everything David does in verses 1 through 12, remembering who God is, light, salvation, a stronghold, resting in the beauty of his attributes and availing himself of that hotline to heaven called prayer and asking for help, that leads him. Those first 12 verses lead him finally to one soul quieting conviction. Verse 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's my conviction. I'm going to make it, I'm going to come through this. I know it. And then as if to just kind of self-coach himself one more time, he says with resolve, wait for the Lord, David, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for your Lord. That's self-coaching. He's telling himself, this is what I need to do. The Hebrew word for waiting that David uses here is a word that's closely related to a word that means to to entrench or to dig in. David says, even as armies and crises and potential destruction are pressing in on every side, 
Lord, I'm going to dig into you. I'm going to entrench myself in you. I'm going to wait in you. And in, this, in your perfect time, I'm going to see good. I know it. I just need to wait. I'll see good. Clearly implied in this Hebrew word waiting is the idea of hard work. Waiting is hard work, isn't it, church? It's super hard. Digging in or entrenching is hard work. Have you ever had to dig a trench? You know how hard that is, especially in Idlewild? Man, there's not a more rocky place in the world probably than what we have right here. It's hard work when you dig a trench, when you entrench yourself. Waiting for God is hard work. It's not laziness. Waiting for God doesn't mean you don't care. It doesn't mean you can doze off. It doesn't mean that, that, that you, you abandon effort. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. You know? No. No. Waiting is hard work. It requires strength, David would say. He uses that word strength to... To hold my will in check. I want to do a certain thing, but I'm going to exercise strength and and courage. I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to accuse God of not being there when I need him to be there. Demands absolute surrender to really wait well. It requires courage. It requires strength. An honest confession that we're at the end of our strength. We don't understand, but God, you do. We exercise the strength not to act until God says, okay, now act. That's waiting well. But you train for that. You have to train. And that's why we remember God, your light, your salvation, your, my stronghold. We rest in his beauty, his attributes. We call on him in humble, sincere, brutally honest, believing prayer. And having done all of that, we determine that we will wait on the Lord. We'll be strong. We'll take courage. And we'll wait on the Lord. And what's his promise, church? What's his promise when we do that? We will see his goodness in the land of the living. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Oh, thank you for the gift of this psalm to us, this song, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus. Thank you for Psalm 27. Thank you for weight training. We, we confess to you that we're, we don't train real well sometimes. We really don't. We're sorry that that is true. Heavenly Father, in this room right now, you look into every heart and you know that there are some hearts right now that are very anxious, that are really, really wondering about what's ahead. There's fear just right there waiting to break in. And so, Lord, I would ask you especially to minister your kindness and your mercy and grace today to those who would be in that place where it's really tough to wait and give them a new resolve a new, a new readiness, strength and courage to wait on you, trusting you because you will meet them and they will see you work in the land of the living. Thank you for that. Lord, in this place right now, we would just confess to you that everything that we have 
is because we have a relationship with you through Jesus. So, Lord, if, if there be anyone in our church family this morning, anyone in this room this morning who doesn't know Jesus, may we start there with a personal relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ, his cross and his resurrection. May it be so. Lord, may you find us waiting well till we see you face to face. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand together, church.